We are going to be in Jude today, so uh, it's near the end of the Bible. Last book is Revelation, and then there's a short one-chapter book right before. And when we were putting the preaching calendar together for the summer, um, you know, we did 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude, and we gave Jude five weeks. And I remember thinking, it's only one chapter. You know, we gave... First John, which has multiple chapters, just a couple weeks. Maybe we should have spread this out better. But as I was going over the text, I thought we could we could take five months on Jude. There's uh, there's a lot here. So uh, in God's kindness, um, we have a lot of weeks to go over it. So um, the main verses for today are verses five through ten. I'm going to start in verse three and read three through ten, and then we'll pray. So uh, if you're in in honor of Ranjur, if you're there, say I'm there. All right, some of you are there, so we will start reading. If you're not there, hopefully a good audio listener. Um, Here's what Jude says, starting in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people, so he's talking about what happened in the Old Testament, and then he's going to compare them. He says, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I do thank you just for the joy of being able to gather together, to sing together, to talk, to hear your word preached, to take communion together. Lord, these are gifts to hear of testimonies going forth of things that you've done. These are gifts. I pray this morning, Lord, as we hear your word, I pray that we will love you. I pray that we will love who you are, that we will love sound doctrine, Lord. And I pray that we will gently and caringly care and love each other, Lord. Please protect us from error, protect us from sin. Lord, we love to sin. I pray, Lord, that you would keep us pure, you would keep us near your heart. Just even in preparing for this sermon, Lord, there's so many ups and downs of emotions of insecurity and 
and pride and, and feeling um, just not uh, ready. And I just thank you, Lord, that we are covered by your grace and that we do not have to perform to be accepted, Father. So I pray this morning that we would embrace who you are, and I pray it would change us. In your name, amen. So the title of the sermon is Be Warned. Jude's going to give us a bunch of warnings here. We're going to go through them. And um, I played basketball one year in middle school and my freshman year in high school. I know you're probably thinking when I walked up here, you looked at me and how tall I was and you thought I played college. I did not. Uh, I played until my freshman year, and then I realized basketball was not my sport. Um, but that freshman year of basketball was pretty eventful. We started out with one coach, and he got fired for inappropriate behavior. And so we got this other coach named Coach Craighead, who's 23 years old, and he was not a basketball coach, but they didn't have anybody else to coach our team. And it's freshman basketball, so, you know, the athletic director is not that concerned about it. So we get Coach Craighead. He comes in, and um, he gave us a lot of speeches. I remember at one, uh, we were playing this bigger school, and they had this well-known coach, and he came in at halftime and was like, look, if it comes down to coaching, we're going to lose because this guy can outcoach me every day of the week. And so we were kind of looking around like, what are we supposed to do with that? I don't know. But the most memorable, co- the most memorable speech that Coach Craig had gave us was, a game we were actually winning, and I think it was, I don't remember if it was a road or a home game, I can't remember what locker room we were in, but we come in, and we're feeling pretty good, and we're joking around, we know we're better than this team, we're winning, and we're all sitting there expecting him to come in and tell us how great we are and to go back out there, and he walks in, I remember the look on his face as if it happened this morning, he walks in angry, and there's a table, and he takes his clipboard, And he slams it down, and he starts yelling and pointing at us. I mean, he lets us have it the whole halftime. He is not happy that we're playing sloppy and that we're being lazy. He doesn't care if we're winning. We're not giving it full effort. We're not taking it serious. And then he storms out, and it's quiet. And you know the quiet that comes over a crowd when you're expecting one thing and something totally opposite happens, and you're looking around trying to figure out, what just happened and what universe you're in? Well, that's what happened. We were all looking at each other, stunned, like this is not, this is not what we thought was going to go down. So needless to say, we walk out for the third quarter, not joking around or horse playing. His message got through. And we took, started to take the game seriously. And, you know, he didn't have to give us any more instruction. And Jude, as I was thinking about getting ready for this, is kind of like that. If you read verse 3, Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing for you to contend for the faith. So we don't know exactly what Jude wants to write, but he wants to write something more uh, maybe along the lines of, of Ephesians 2. You know, talking about the amazing grace of Jesus and how he pulled us out of sin. Or maybe he wants to write something more like Colossians 3 that talks about how to love and serve each other through the grace of the gospel. But he realizes, I need to lay it down and give these people some warnings. And so as much as I, I mean, I don't know if we all do, but I prefer the like raw, raw Jesus message or the, or the, you know, snuggly, cuddly, cuddly teddy bear Jesus messages. Uh, We're getting warnings today. And 
So, you know, today's message is about sin and false teachers. So, you know, pucker up, buttercup. This is where we're going. And uh, we got to just realize that we're all big balls of sin, and we all love to chase after things that are false. And we need God's help, and we need God's help in some tangible ways to make sure that we don't start following heresy and that we don't, you know, revel too long in sin. So um, this passage, just I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, uh, but it's very similar to 2 Peter 2. And if you go read 2 Peter 2, sometimes you'll think you're reading Jude. Um, it's amazing the imagery that God puts on both of their hearts to write to the, to the people at this time. And at this time that Jude comes around, in the beginning, a lot of the church writings are everything is new and fresh. Christ has just arisen, and we need to know, you know, what is true about the gospel and how to live. And then we get some of these other books after things have been around for a while and problems are starting to happen. And so after Paul has planted some churches and they're starting to go astray, he has to write them some letters like 1 Corinthians. And John has to write some letters like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And Jude has to write Jude. And James has to write James. And so we start to get some, to realize, um, okay, when we first come and we love Jesus and we're serving him, um, we can still, we still have our old nature. We can be corrupted by sin. And next week, man, Jude is going to let it fly. I don't know if this guy knew how to rap, but in verses 11 through 13, I mean, he's going to lay down the imagery. It is, the metaphors and the imagery are going to be coming. I mean, the commas can barely keep up. So uh, I think Travis has got that next week. So look forward to that. Travis, I know, cannot rap, but pray for him as he prepares for that message. So uh, so there's four outlines of the text, that, that, and there's more here. We could spend a lot of time here. Um, so I'm going to try to keep it under two and a half hours. But um, here's the outline of the text. Sin is serious, and Jude's going to give us three warnings from the Old Testament. Sin is still sin, despite many of the messages we get today. And God is the only source of power. And finally, our instinct is not always trustworthy. So I want to go through each of these individually. And in verse 5, this is, so Jude gives us verses 5, 6, and 7. He just gives us some warnings. Each verse is one from the Old Testament. So in verse 5, uh, he says, Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So, the warning is, this is a reminder, first of all, I always love when you can see uh, re reminders of who God is. And in verse 5, it says, um, Jesus is the one who saved the people out of Egypt. So we need to remember, we have one God, three persons. Jesus did not begin when he was born here on earth. He's always existed uh, in the form of God the Son. No one created him. Um, so we get the Old Testament stories where God comes in and he, he picks his people, uh, he, he chooses Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, so great that I want um, all the world to realize who I am. So the purpose of Abraham even then is for, for everyone to realize who God is and to understand God's glory. And so I've been reading the Old Testament chronologically this year and it's been really helpful. Uh, but one thing that I think I've always known but feels fresher than ever is... Um, we love to rebel against God. It is in our DNA 
to sin and to rebel against God. The people of Israel, from the beginning, all the way throughout the story, are rebelling against God. And we shouldn't condemn them because it's meant to be a picture of who we are as people. But, I mean, early on, the people are in slavery. They've been in, down in Egypt for over 400 years. The, the Egyptians are treating them terribly. They're in slavery, and Moses comes in Exodus 6 to tell them that God has sent Moses to deliver them out of slavery. They have been praying for this. This is what their hearts have desired. And Moses shows up and says, God has heard your prayer and I'm here. He's going to use me to deliver you out of slavery. And Exodus 6, 9 tells us they didn't believe him. So they've been praying for this thing. God provides a messenger. And they're like, ah, we don't think so. So right away, we get this, this unbelief. And you would think, okay, God's going to do some things in Egypt. And it'll turn around. And then they'll believe God. The whole way to the promised land, they don't believe God. When they get in the promised land, they don't believe God and do what he says. And then after they're established in the promised land, they have all this cycle of rebelling against God and then being killed and conquered and exiled and God saving them and then them rebelling against God. I mean, it just goes over and over and over. They're like a waffle house of sin. They're open 24-7, 365 days a year. It is sin all the time and rebellion all the time for these Israelites. In Numbers 16... There's one chapter where two different times people are killed because of their rebellion against God. The beginning of the chapter, there are people rebelling against what God's told them to do and the leadership he's put in place. And the earth literally splits open and these people fall into it and they die. And it's meant to be, uh, you know, a moment to point people to who God is and to realize he sovereignly knows what is best for them. The next day, in the same chapter, they get up and they are grumbling against God. And 14,000 of them die before Moses intercedes and God stays his hand. I mean, this is who they are. They are repeatedly pursuing rebellion and sin. And Jude brings that up because these people would have probably known the Old Testament and they would have known how rebellious God's people were to remind them that we are the same. We want, it is in our nature to rebel against God and to want to take authority where we do not have authority. And so Judah's saying, remember, these people were saved. God rescued them. He answered their prayers. And yet some of them rebelled and were still killed because they refused to listen to God. And then he goes on and he talks about the angels. Now in verse 6 he says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Um, and I read some commentators on this, and we don't know exactly to what specific instance he's referring to. Most seem to think it's Genesis 6. Um, so we don't know exactly, but the main point is, why are these angels, what, why is what happened to them happened to them? The main reason is, they reject God's authority. It says they did not stay within the position of authority. So this is where sin always begins with us. It always starts with the, when we have an authority problem. If we truly believe God is perfect, if he's a sovereign being who only does things that are in our best interest for our glory, then we would not sin. 
But we sin because ultimately we think either God is holding something back from us that's good. We think we can see something that maybe God is missing. Or we just think we know better than God. And so anytime we sin, really what we're doing at the root of it, I know we don't always think this way through, at least I don't. But really what we're saying is, you know what? You're doing an okay job, but it's time for me to get on the throne and take the scepter here. Because on this one, I know better than you. That's where sin always starts. If we really believe God is who he says he is and does what he says he does, what he, what he promises he will do, we wouldn't sin. But we sin because we believe we know better than God and we want to be in the position of authority. And it's hard for that, us to grasp that. It's hard for me to grasp it as I'm saying it, if I'm being honest. Um, but we're hopeless and evil apart from God. We don't like to believe that. We don't like to remember that. But that's who we are. And if we're not, then the salvation of God is not, that, not as precious as we say it is. But we know it is. We know that we're born into sin and that rebellion against God's authority is in our nature. And we have to remind ourselves that Jesus is our only hope. When we sin, we're ultimately telling, arrogantly telling God, I know better than you and I'm going to take the wheel here. And so Jude is saying, that's a dangerous position to put yourself into. And we need to not do that. And then he goes on and he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now I went back and read this story because I hadn't read it in a while, and I wanted to make sure it was fresh. And I want to focus on a little bit of a different angle with the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, because Sodom and Gomorrah get to the point where they're so corrupted, they're so full of evil, so many vile things are happening, that God sends two angels there to bring destruction on those cities and the, and the surrounding cities. And the two angels show up in Sodom one afternoon, and Lot greets them. And he, he says, I want you to come stay in my house. And they say, you know what? Uh, we're just going to stay in the town square, which wouldn't have been totally uncommon in that time because there weren't, you know, hotels and other things like we have today. And so, you know, traveler coming into town, staying in the middle of town wouldn't have been that uncommon. But Lot knows the depravity of the city. And it, it seems to be affecting him, but he knows this will not go well for these two men if they're in the town square by themselves. So he begs them, he implores them, please come stay at my house because Lot's thinking at least if I have them under my roof, I can probably provide them some level of protection and things will be okay. And so that evening, if you go back and read, it says, the text says, they show up at Lot's door, but not just they as in the city. It says that every last man, young and old, surrounded Lot's house, and they demanded that he turn out his visitors. Now, these men of the city were planning to rape and do some vile things to these two angels that they thought were men. They must have had the appearance of men. They come in, they think they're men. They don't realize they're angels. And this is, this is abhorrible depravity. But what struck me the most in reading this this time was just the sin ran so deep it was so deep in Sodom and Gomorrah that they had completely lost a view of humanity and they were only seeing people as objects. They had completely lost a view of people being created in the image of God as having value as being an image bearer of God and they only saw people as objects. And this 
leads to all kinds of dark corruption and defilement. In, in the modern world, if you think about the 20th century, and you think about Hitler and Stalin and Mao and the tens of millions of people that died at, the, at their hands and under their rule, they only viewed those people as objects to get accomplished what they wanted to get accomplished. They were not viewed as people who had value in the eyes of God. And it still goes on today, even in places like North Korea, where Kim Jong-un ruins over, rules over those people with, with massive fear and oppression. Uh, it was even just reported by the BBC in June that things are so bad in North Korea that many people are struggling with, uh, with starvation and are dying because they don't have the resources they need. He's not a man that cares about his people and their good. He only sees them as objects for accomplishing and ruling in his kingdom, in his way. And when we get to the point that we don't see people as value in the sight of God and we only see them as objects to be exploited or used, it leads to darkness and oppression and vile acts now, I want to be clear. I'm not backing away from what the Bible says about gender and sexuality by not focusing on exactly what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. God created two genders, male and female. He created marriage to be a super consensual, monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. Um, I'm also not saying that same-sex attraction isn't real, but I am saying that pursuing homosexuality or an open marriage or any other sexual ethic that is, that is pushed today is progressive and accepted. None of those things are condoned by the Bible. And, and we need to be aware that sin is crouching at the door. He's going to talk next week about Cain. And if you read the story of Cain and Abel, Cain is mad at God because God will not accept his offering. And he doesn't realize he's coming with an impure heart. And what does God say to him? He says, you need to be aware sin is crouching. And the idea is a predator hiding in stealth, waiting for its unsuspecting prey to pounce on it and kill it. And that is what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sin was crouching and it became so perversive, I mean so pervasive, and it, and it, it penetrated so deep into their hearts that they couldn't even see people as anything other than just objects to be exploited. And so Jude is warning, warning us against these things. And he goes on in, in verse 8 to expound a little more. And this is where we get to the point that sin is still sin. So what are these people doing? He gives us three warnings, and he says, yet in like manner, these people also. So what is he saying, yet in like manner? Yet in these three things I just gave you, in all these sinful ways, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, what do they do? They defile the flesh. They reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. So these people, even though we've, they've been warned from ancient times, and they had the, the whole Old Testament and all that God had done to warn his people, they still have three problems. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. And this is what we do in our hearts when we sin. And this is what false teachers do when they seek to lead us astray. They don't seek to lead us to the glory of God. They seek to lead us to some means that is satisfying their ends. And none of these actions line up with scripture. None of them. Those three things, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority and blaspheming the God. They're all blaspheming the holy ones. They're all against God. And we must evaluate things through the lens of scripture and through God's character and who he says he is to make sure that we're not led astray. 
Because some people want to persuade us with their own experiences or visions or dreams. But none of these things, none of these experiences outweigh God and who he says he is. The Bible talks about God and his word as being inseparable, that you, you can't separate them. Um, that what we have revealed about God and who he is in his word is our trustworthy source. Um, and we should never follow through on anything that's against God and his word. And special insight is often dangerous. People have used it over the years for all kinds of things. Um, at, 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 you know, it can lead you to individual sin, and in some cases, it can lead people to create um, whole false religions. So if you think about Joseph Smith, his whole claim was he had a special uh, a vision or visitation from an angel that showed him some ancient artifacts, and he used that position of authority to create Mormonism. If you think about Muhammad, he, was, he said he was God's true prophet, and he used that position of authority to create Islam. And we have a lot of, uh, of modern-day examples. So growing up in Texas and growing up in the 80s and 90s, you know, the David Crush thing was a big deal. And that guy said all kinds of crazy things about who he was in relation to God, and it led to the death of a lot of people, including himself. And so it, you've got to be careful. We cannot rely on our own experiences above who God is or what God says he is. And even individually in those less extreme cases, People are tempted sometimes to justify their sin. Um, you know, people can be tempted sometimes to justify an affair, to say the connection they have with the person, you know, almost feels supernatural. It feels special. It feels like something they've never experienced before. God will never give us experiences that allow us to justify sin. In the 60s and 70s, I was hit by this when I saw, uh, we went and saw the Jesus Revolution earlier this year. And it's a great movie about God redeeming some people. And it has a very realistic um, portrayal of drug use in there. And in the 60s and 70s, a lot of people thought that by using drugs in, in, in a way that was reckless, they were going to open their minds to some dimension or some reality that was inaccessible without getting high. So we can use all of these experiences to try to justify what we want to do for sin. But at the end of the day, it's sin. We're pursuing sin and rebellion against God. Or false teachers are teaching things that are against God. They're defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming. So we've got to be, remember that sin is sin. And we don't need to be tempted to believe that it's not. Um, or to believe that we have found something special that's better or more fulfilling than God or who God says he is. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, all of that is idolatry. We're just seeking to put something else in God's place and worship that thing. So um, when we blaspheme, we confess basically things as better than God. And that's what, you know, the, uh, uh, that's what he's saying that these people are doing. And um, then he's going to go and he's going to reference the Apocrypha. And I was telling the elders when we were having our elders meeting, I was like, I know I trust God's sovereignty, uh, and I'm the only one who's not seminary trained, and I got the passage that references the Apocrypha. So we're going to trust that the Lord's going to work this out. Um, yes, thank you, sister. Um, so he goes, and he references uh, this scene with Michael the archangel. We don't know if he's talking about the body of Moses, the literal body of Moses, or if he's talking about the children of Israel, Commentators have different views on this. Um, but verse 9 says, 
But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, angels are powerful beings, and we need to understand that they're much more powerful than we are. And I'm not an angel expert, but if you read the Bible, the Bible is pretty clear that angels do have the ability to sin, but they do not have a path to redemption. So they're different than us in a lot of ways, um, but we need to be really careful to remember um, that they're not these little people in white robes and cute little wings and a halo. That is not the picture the Bible paints. Um, they're described in Psalm 103.20 as mighty ones or mighty warriors. And they, have a, they do have some, some kind of majestic presence because when John, the apostle John, who wrote Revelation, uh, he was, you know, as far as we can tell by church history, the oldest apostle, uh, or died the latest, lived the most after Christ rose and, and ascended to heaven. He would, John was with Jesus on earth. He saw Jesus die. He saw, he saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw the miracles and acts. And when John in Revelation sees an angel, he falls down to worship the angel. Now the angel tells him to get up and he says, don't worship me because I'm, I'm like you, that we've got to worship the true one. But John, who had seen a lot of stuff, I would say more than any of us all put together, sees this angel and, and realizes how majestic he is. He's tempted to worship it. In Matthew 24 through 39, or 20, sorry, 24 verses 29 to 31, this is what Jesus says. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So Jesus is going to come in glory, and the angels are going to be with him. Now, he doesn't need them. He's the one who conquered sin and death. He's the one who has the glory. But the angels are powerful enough. They get to ride with him in his posse at a pretty important time in history, right? So they're going to be there, and they're going to do, they're going to go be at his side, and they're going to go gather his people, like he says. If you go into Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, the Bible tells us this. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael, who we get referenced here, and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Who's the great dragon? The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. So here we get another reference to Michael, who's the leader of the hosts of heaven. And he is being used to battle Satan and his demons. Okay, so these are mighty warriors, ready and equipped and engaged in battle. This picture is, is given in the ultimate defeat of Satan and him being cast from heaven. Now, these are powerful, powerful images about who angels are and how God uses them. That they are warriors they're trained for battle, they're battle-tested, they've been engaged in battle, and they've been victorious under the hand of God. Now, we're not to pray to or worship them, but we need to understand that they're mighty. 
And if they, Michael, does not engage Satan directly, but calls on the power of the Lord to take care of it, then we need to realize that sin and evil and Satan are, are mighty and are not to be messed with. They don't have any rule or authority over us because of who Jesus is, but we need to go to God and not engage them. We need to call on God and his power to engage them and to deal with them and to, to subdue them and to rebuke them. And we need to not be arrogant to try to think that we have some special authority to confront them on our own because we are hopeless without Jesus and without God and his covering over us. Amen? So last, let's go to verses uh, 10. So Jude gives us these warnings. He gives us the three from the Old Testament. Then he talks about these people, they're doing the same thing as these in the Old Testament did that got judgment. Then he talks about the power of the angels and the power of uh, evil and how even the angels know their ultimate authority only comes from God. And he says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now we are born sinners in need of salvation. We're born physically alive but spiritually dead. And we need to remember this because we need to know that our thoughts, desires, actions, impulses are not always trustworthy and pure. We're redeemed. We have the spirit living in us. If you've confessed Jesus as your savior, then Christ has redeemed you. You're fully accepted. You're fully God's son or daughter. You will spend eternity in bliss glorifying him those things are secure. We still have living in our bodies, living under the curse of sin, a temptation and a desire to pursue things that are sinful. And we still have to repent. We don't have to repent to be accepted by God, but we have to repent to acknowledge that we sinned and we need his grace. And so we often struggle in life, um, I think especially in modern ages in our culture, to want to believe that we need help outside of ourselves. There are common messages, whether you watch Disney movies, you read, um, you know, counselors, secular counselors, you know, you, uh, you do Apple Fitness, and uh, like I do, and, you know, they tell you, uh, you're strong, and you have everything you need inside of you. Our culture wants to, to bombard us with this message that, that we have what we need, that you've got to figure out what's right for you. You've got to write your own story. Don't let anybody tell you uh, not to be you. You know, whatever makes you happy, you've got to pursue it. So there's this instinct to say, you've got to find your own happiness and no one else can help you. In fact, some would go to far, as far to say, if other people are trying to help you or if they're speaking in against what you're trying to pursue, they're not for you. And at worst, they may even be trying to oppress you. Now, this is counter to what the Bible talks about, that we're not to be trusted because we have sin inside of us, and we need his word, and we need each other, and we need fellowship with God to be able to know what God really has for us, and that the Bible is there to help inform and instruct and admonish and train and encourage us. And God's also left us something tangible. He's left us each other to speak life into each other. Because instincts 
aren't always right. We have a dog, a dog that lives in our house. And she's been in our family for nine years. And I think I still like dogs, but I think I like outside dogs. I grew up and we had a lot of dogs, but most of them lived outside. And they're way less maintenance and way less needy. And they're way less annoying when they live outside, the place that God created them to live. But this dog lives in our house and her name is Happy. And some of her dog instincts are really good. She wants to be where her people are, which is good. And she wants to be faithful and loyal to her family. And when somebody walks or drives in front of our house, she wants to bark at them to let her know that she would do nothing, but hopefully her bark will scare them. And so she has a lot of good dog instincts, but some of her dog instincts are terrible. Not bad, they are terrible. And she would last about 26 minutes in the wild, maybe. She would either eat something that's poisonous or she would run up to greet a predator. She would run up and be like, hey, a wolf. Should I just climb on this plate and cover myself in ketchup so that you can eat me? I mean, she's, she's so dumb sometimes. So a few years ago in our yard, we planted daffodils. Why do we plant daffodils? We intentionally picked daffodils because daffodils are poisonous and deer will not eat them. Well, unfortunately, the daffodils got too much water and they died. And so the bulbs turned to mush. So I was outside in the yard one day digging up the bulbs and Happy was outside with me, which is where she was created to be. But again, she lives in our house. So I dig up the first tulip bulb. As soon as the bulb leaves the shovel and hits the ground, she eats it. So I have to take her back inside so that she will not die while I am clean digging up these tulip bulbs. So again, some of her dog instincts are great. When we get home today, she'll be happy to see me. Even if I'm not happy to see her, she'll be happy and she'll be wagging her tail. But some of her dog instincts are terrible. And as much as we hate to admit it, we are a lot like happy. Sometimes our instincts and God is telling us what to do and we know and we follow it. But if you've lived any length of time, you know that you have been convinced about something that was right, even though other try people tried to tell you it was not a good idea or this was not what you should be doing and you followed through with it anyway and it was disastrous. And so look around in this room, like it or not, who you see, God has given us each other He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit because we cannot always trust our instincts. Despite what other people tell us, we do not have everything inside of us to live a happy, fulfilled life. It's not how we were created. We need something bigger than us outside of us. That is how we find redemption. That is how we find salvation. And the goal is not happiness, but that's the only way we were created to glorify God something bigger that's outside of us. And that's the only way that we can truly find happiness. And so Jude is saying, these people blaspheme. They blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So our, sin, our natural nature is sin. So we should have a predisposition to not trust our instincts. We don't, but we should. And we need other people to pray for us, to speak into our lives. And Jude wants to make sure that we don't become subject to false doctrine, to false teaching, and that we don't allow sin to master us. And so he gives us these warnings. It's not always the most feel-good thing, but we do need to be reminded that we're sinners, that God has conquered sin and salvation, 
and he's given us what we need to live pursuing him in his will fulfilled. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go to the Lord's Supper. But I want to read uh, just a couple sentences as a conclusion. So again, we're sinners. Sin is serious. It leads to more sin and hopelessness. Sin has always been our problem, and that is why we need salvation. There are those who want to lead us astray and away from God. Because of sin, we cannot fully trust ourselves. And God has given us his word, his spirit, and each other to taste and see that he's better. Amen? Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage in Jude. I thank you, Lord, that even though there's some difficult things in here that are hard to remember and hard to, to be honest, Lord, and even to own, it's hard to own that there's nothing good inside of me. It's hard to own that um, I need help. It's hard to own that I need other people. And it's hard to own, Lord, that other people may see things in my life better than I see them. Lord, those are, those are hard for us to want to confess because they require vulnerability. They require being honest. And they, re they require, Lord, submitting to you. And so I confess, Lord, these are things that I struggle with. And Lord, we need your help. I pray that you would help us now. I pray that you would help us collectively. I know that Satan wants to defeat. He wants to defeat us. He does not want to hear testimonies of 22 lost people coming to faith. He does not want to hear testimonies of new babies being born into loving Christian parents. Lord, but I pray you will help us. We acknowledge that you have defeated sin. You defeated Satan. And we've acknowledged, Lord, that we need you and we need your help. So I pray you would pour your grace on us. And thank you for the reminder as we go to the table now, Lord, that it was through suffering, it was through death that you won the victory and you made a way for salvation. I pray we would be humble. In your name, amen.